thank you for your prayers, Aaron. It is a real joy to be with you this morning. My wife and I visited this uh, church last summer, and it was a joy to worship with you on one of our Sundays off of vacation. We don't get many Sundays off, so it's good to fellowship with a like-minded church and hear the uh, preaching of God's word. I was just recently on a panel with Josiah Rock, and um, it was a panel on... Uh, ecclesiology, so the theology of the church and how that helps the college student as they um, trudge their way through uh, college, seminary, whatever it happens to be. And the, 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 the person leading the panel said, what is your favorite thing about your church? And everyone answered and it got to Josiah and Josiah said, I love the people. So you are well loved here and uh, that really stuck out to me as a sort of character that you have in uh, your leadership. We're in Psalm 99 today. Uh, if you have that open, that will hopefully serve you well. Just give me a second to pray once more, and then let's dive in. Father in heaven, we pray that you would sanctify your word to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen. In his best-selling work, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes the following, and I quote, The Christian's instincts of trust and worship are stimulated very powerfully by knowledge of the greatness of God. But this is knowledge which Christians today largely lack, and that is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship so flabby. We are modern men, and modern men, though they cherish great thoughts of man, have as a rule small thoughts of God. When the man in the church, let alone the man in the street, uses the word God, the thought in his mind is rarely of divine majesty. Packer's concern here, as we see in this quote, is that our doctrine of God in the church and outside the church is deficient, shallow, leading to feeble faith and flabby worship. He goes on to say in this wonderful book, he says, today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic even. Another writer, Matthew Barrett, highlights the same issue in his work on the attributes of God. He points out that there is a gaping hole in our understanding of God, and it is often filled by either the writings of liberal theologians who don't believe what the Scripture actually says about God, or it is filled by worshiping sort of the God of our imagination, the God that we have created in our own image, as it were, a God who looks a lot like us. To quote Barrett, he says, a God whose transcendence is swallowed up by his imminence, a God that can be controlled by his creatures because he doesn't look all that different from his creatures. We are large friends in our own thinking. We tend to be the center of the universe that we inhabit. Our thinking is often consumed with self. Our daily activity often revolves around ourself. Our investment of time and money is self-centered so often. And even our worship can revolve around ourself. My preferences, my excitement, my style. In many ways, we are anthropocentric 
and not theocentric, anthropocentric, anthropology, the study of humans, theocentric, the study of God. We are so anthropocentric often and not theocentric. We have a deficit in our doctrine of God, which leads to a deficit in our worship, a deficit in our spirituality, a deficit in our Christian life. And there is an ever-present danger that the very godness of God be lost in the midst of a church or diminished or forgotten by the Christian. And when our doctrine of God is thin, when it is frail, when it is anemic, disaster is not usually that far away. And I know that Heritage Grace does not want to be the sort of church, and I know that the Christians at Heritage Grace don't want to be the sort of Christians who, to paraphrase Matthew Barrett, have a big heart for ministry, but look almost anemic when asked about the big God they proclaim to worship. If A.W. Tozer is right, and I think he is, that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, then we must turn our attention to what God has revealed about himself in his word so that we might know him truly. Oh, to know God truly, to know him as he actually is, not to know him as we have lazily fashioned him or imagined him, not to know him by the cliches that we have picked up over our time at church or in popular literature or in pop culture. No, but to know him as he has divinely revealed himself. That is what the psalmist's interest is in our psalm this morning. His interest is that we know God truly and worship him truly as a result. The psalm stirs up for us great thoughts of God so that great and true worship will ensue. And if we were to summarize this text in one line, it would be this, the Lord God is a holy king, worship him. That's these nine verses condensed into one powerful phrase. The Lord God is a holy king. Worship him. And as we read this text, this passage is meant to lift us up from apathy, from ignorance maybe, from indifference even, to the very heights of God. It takes us from the shallows to the depths of God. So please take your copy of the scriptures and let us read together Psalm 99. Hear then the word of the Lord. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his, at his footstool, holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, Samuel also was among those who called upon his name, they called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them, they kept his testimonies, testimonies and the statute that he gave them, O Lord our God, you answered them, you were a forgiving God to them but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. 
This psalm, Psalm 99, finds itself at the end of a section of psalms often referred to as the enthronement psalms. And in each of the enthronement psalms, Psalm 93 to 99, we see God's majesty and grandeur highlighted, and that is usually followed by a call for those who are reading and partaking in the psalms to worship this great God. And in our text this morning, we see four characteristics highlighted in this psalm specifically of the God that we worship. Four characteristics are communicated about who this God is that we are called to worship. And the first theme, you'll see it in your handout, the first theme that we see highlighted is really the theme of the psalm. First, we worship the God who is holy. We worship the God who is holy. God's holiness is the refrain woven throughout the entirety of the psalm. You see it at the end of verse 3, at the end of verse 5, and at the end of verse 9. Friends, we worship a holy God. We do not worship a grandfather in the sky. The God that we worship is holy, and this is the testimony of all of Scripture. God's holiness is, if you remember, first mentioned in Exodus chapter 3. Here is the account of Moses and the burning bush. Moses sees this burning bush and he approaches it. But as he approaches the burning bush, God commands him not to come near. Stay, what, stay at a distance, Moses. Do not come near. He commands Moses, take the sandals off your feet. Why? Because the ground, the very ground, is made holy by the presence of God manifest in this burning bush. And the very next verse, if you're reading through Exodus chapter 3, tells us that Moses was afraid, it says. Why? Because he was encountering the one who is perfectly pure, morally upright, separate and distinct from us, unstained in every way. And so we see God's holiness right at the beginning of the Bible almost in Exodus chapter 3. But then you move on a number of chapters and you see God's holiness on display at that climactic event in Exodus 19 and 20. You know what I'm talking about, Mount Sinai. Here the people of Israel are given instructions not to touch the mountain, not to approach the mountain. You can almost picture it in your mind. There are barricades set up around the mountain where God will manifest himself. And God says, you warn the people, Moses, that no one approach the mountain. Otherwise, what will happen? They will die. Any touch of the mountain and the, the person, their life will be no more whatsoever. So make sure the people know this. Make sure the people come clean even to those barricades. Make sure they clean themselves. Make sure they purify themselves. Make sure that they're not morally impure in any way. Here we see in Exodus 19 and 20 a demonstration of the separateness, the, the fact that God is distinct from sinners. God is holy and we dare not approach him on any terms but his own. God's separation for sinners is also vividly displayed as you work your way through those first five books of the Bible in the holy of holies. That inner room in the temple, you know that inner room. The curtain is put up 
and only once a year can the high priest walk into that room, and he only after going through purification ceremonies, the curtain was a big keep out sign, do not enter, the presence of God manifests itself here. Once a year on the Day of Atonement and only by the blood of spotless animals can one man enter on behalf of the people. This curtain that stood between the other priests and the inner holy of holies was a big keep out sign saying, your God is holy. He is not to be trifled with. You do not casually stroll into the presence of the living God. And then in the book of Samuel, in chapter 5, we read about the Philistines, a pagan nation, capturing the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites. And God strikes the Philistine people with tumors because they held the very peace that signified the presence and the holiness of God. And he strikes these people with tumors. And they were scared that they're going to die because of the Ark of the Covenant was among them. And unholy people possessed this holy ark of Yahweh of hosts. Then in the very next chapter, after the Israelites get the ark back, the Lord strikes down, it says, it, it's this, it's this one-off verse that you sort of go, what's going on here? The Lord strikes down seven, 70 Israelite men after the ark has returned to the Israelites. The Philistines don't want it anymore. We're getting tumors. We're getting, we're getting all sorts of ailments because we possess the holy ark and we're an unholy people. So they give it back to the Israelites and the Israelites, all of a sudden, 70 of them die. Well, the, the, the implicit message in the text is that these 70 people had casually looked upon the ark. They had casually treated the ark as though it was just another piece of furniture that belonged to the rig- religious rites of Israel. And the Lord struck them down. And then in 2 Samuel, we get that well-known account of Uzzah putting his hand out to steady the ark. They're transporting the ark back to Jerusalem. And one of the men is walking alongside the ark, and the ark tumbles a little bit, and he puts out his hand to steady it, as any of us might. And he's struck down dead. Now, we might go, why did that have to happen? Isn't that unjust and temperamental of God? No, the text says, God is holy. I love how R.C. Sproul summarizes this account. He says, Uzzah assumed in that moment that his hand was less polluted than the earth. He knew he was not supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant, and he let out his hand to steady this thing, and he was gone. The unholy touched what was holy. One more picture in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 6, probably one of the highlight texts of the Old Testament, you see Isaiah the prophet, this holy man, gets a vision of the Lord, and he sees the Lord high and seated on a throne, and there are seraphim antiphonally calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And as Isaiah, the most holy man in Israel, as it were, gets this vision, he realizes, wait a second, if that is true about this God, then I am unclean. And I, there's no way I should approach him in any way. And he sees his sin and he pronounces a death woe upon himself. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. As Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he is confronted by his own unholiness, heritage, grace, behold your God. He is holy. 
He is pure. He is perfect. He is distinct. He is separate from sinners. There is no one like him. And this reality ought to inform the way that you and I worship. It should cause us to be humble as we come before him, recognizing that we are sinful, recognizing that we are feeble and frail, recognizing that his greatness is truly, as the scriptures say, unsearchable. It should cause us to come before him in repentance, as we already have this morning, acknowledging our faults and failures. The holiness of God always points us to our sin. This fact should cause us to come before the Lord in reverent fear and awe. That is the reaction of everyone who encounters the living God and the scriptures. Yes, we are invited to draw near to him. Yes, God is good, but he is still God and he is to be feared. You might know the series Narnia written by C.S. Lewis. I loved what Mr. Beaver says to Susan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Susan asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, the lion. Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Same is true of our God. Is he safe? Of course he isn't. He is a holy God. Friends, God is not to be trifled with. We are not to be flippant and careless in our interaction with him. We live before the face of God who is holy. That's the first characteristic that we see in our text. Second, we worship the God who reigns. Look at verses 1 to 3 in your copy of the scriptures. First three verses of the psalm, we're told that God is a king. He reigns. Look at the language. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. He is great. He is exalted over all peoples. Now, when we come into contact with royalty, it is a predictable phenomenon. Crowds gather. People cheer. They have an awestruck look on their face. Phones come out. Phones in droves. It's like people are enjoying what's really in front of them through a screen. It's always struck me as a little bit odd. There might be a bow or a curtsy as we look at royalty. If there's the opportunity to speak to this royal figure, there is formality and care taken in the words that we use. There are nerves, there is stuttering, there's excitement. This week I looked at how many monarchies exist around the world today, and the internet's a little bit confused about this fact. Uh, it says anywhere from 25 to 43 monarchies exist on planet Earth today. And you start reading about some of these people who are monarchs in different lands, and you, you start to gather information, and you see that these people are either, you know, millionaires or they're billionaires. There are some, you know, Saudi Arabian um, oil tycoons who are just, they, they own billions and billions and billions. These people reign over anywhere from hundreds of thousands of people to millions of people. They have grand titles and they are held in high esteem. But these monarchs do not measure up to the might and majesty of our God, the scriptures say. Yes, these monarchs are worth millions, but the Lord is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There is nothing that these monarchs can lay claim to that God does not already own and that God cannot take away from them in an instant. These monarchs rule over hundreds of thousands, but the Lord God is king over all creation. All are subject to him, and one day every knee will bow to God the Son in subjection to his rule. These monarchs have grand titles, but the Lord is the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the everlasting one. 
a consuming fire, the covenant-keeping God. These monarchs are celebrated by their subjects, but as Psalm 98 (laughs) says, even the seas and the rivers and the hills are commanded to praise the most high God. Our God tells us that our, you know, our text tells us that our God is exalted over all peoples, everyone who ever was, everyone who ever is, and everyone who ever will be. He is exalted over them. These monarchs that I looked up, they will have their rule end when death takes them. They've got a limited amount of time. We saw this in our beloved queen as she you know, passed away. We thought she'd hit 100, but there, there we go. She passes away. Her rule eventually came to an end. But the Lord is the everlasting one. His rule and reign know no end. And these monarchs, and we see this time and again in politics, in monarchies, these monarchs are fallible. They are prone to sin and error. But God is perfectly righteous in all of his ways. And the text tells us, take a look at it, that the Lord sits enthroned upon the cherubim, 99 verse 1. These heavenly servants serve the Most High. This picture is God sitting in the Holy of Holies in the temple, sitting upon the Ark of the Covenant, ruling over all that he has made. There is no monarch like him, as this description is used, in splendor and glory like his. Love the way a psalm, uh, just a little bit later in the Psalter, paints the picture of the distance between us and God. It says in Psalm 113, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down, far down on the heavens and the earth. He bends his back to behold the earth. Then Isaiah 66, 1, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. So Psalm 99, as it beholds this great and beautiful and grand God, says, here's your response. Tremble before him, all the earth. We tremble when we are afraid, when we are in awe of something. Response number two, quake like an earthquake. This is majesty. Third response, praise him for all that he is. There is nothing else worthy of worship. Actually, as humans, we're pretty good at praise. This last December, we praised Connor Bedard and the Canadian World Junior Team as they soared to gold in the World Juniors Championship. People were going crazy. The tournament was in Canada. We all loved watching it, or at least I did. And uh, it was great to see Connor Bedard, you know, the star of the team, rack up all these points. His name was lauded in the media. We, we praise that which we get excited about. We praise that which we are in awe of. But four months on, we've forgotten about the world junior team we've sort of forgotten about Connor Bedard we've left that behind but friends we never leave the praise of the everlasting king behind as we behold him he never changes we never we should never grow weary of lauding him and praising him his mercies the bible says are new every morning there is no one like our god who reigns. This is praise we never move on from. So we worship the God who is holy, and we worship, verses 1 to 3, the text says, the God who reigns. But look also at verses 4 and 5. They tell us another significant characteristic of this God that we worship. 
They tell us that we worship the God who is just. Look at verse four. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Courts and legal systems hand down rulings. And when these rulings are handed down, people inevitably talk. You've heard it. If you've ever turned on your television or you check the news in the morning, people talk. There are news reports, there are articles, there are discussions about whether or not the ruling was fair. Appeals can be made to a higher court if a party does not agree with the decision that is made in a lower court. We talk about the rulings, the justice that is handed down. The police are always in the news. Why? Because people are debating whether or not they should have done this or should have done that. Judges are always in the news. Was this ruling fair? Was it not? Was it constitutional? Was it not? The rule of a human judge is not infallible. And this can be a great aggravation to us when injustice is done in the courts or anywhere, we can get angry and upset. Injustice causes deep sorrow and disorientation. When we are treated unfairly or lies are told and believed about us, when crimes perpetrated against us are never resolved, it seems like evil is winning, we are perplexed, we become angry, we become confused and deeply hurt. And in a room this size, there are bound to be numerous people struggling with injustice. But friend, let the word of God assure you this morning that the God that we are called to worship is just. All the wrongs of this world, that means, will be righted. All the sin in this world will be exposed. All that is hidden will be made known. All the crimes in this world will be laid bare. All the evil, evil perpetrated against you will be finally and decisively dealt with. No stone will be left unturned. No one will be able to accuse God of partiality or favoritism or error. There will be no discussion about God's rulings. And I pray that you would take comfort in that this morning, even as you are unjustly accused. I pray that that would give your soul, your weary soul, rest. It's a comfort to God's people to know that God is a just God. But there's also an uncomfortable truth that I must alert us to. Because God is just and righteous, he will deal with sin in perfect justice and righteousness. And that means that if we are rebelling against him and rejecting his holy rule and reign, we will be dealt with with the unflagging justice of God. There will be no appeal in this court the judge of all the earth will do what is right and it will be irreversible. Living in rebellion against the eternal God is a sin that must be dealt with with the eternal fires of hell, eternal conscious punishment. There will be no relief. There will be no breaks. There will be no reconsideration. Everlasting torment awaits all those who do not bow the knee to Christ and repent of their sins. And so the call of the word justice as it is associated with God. Anytime we read about the justice of God, the call here is to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ while time allows. There will be no bargaining with, Christ, with God on the final day. God is just to save those who call upon the name of Jesus, for Jesus has paid for every sin on Calvary's cross. We can escape eternal torment by bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friend, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Take refuge in him. The justice of God is a comfort to those who are safe in Christ, but it is a terror to those who are outside of him. 
The text call for everyone is to behold the God who is just and to worship him. But up till this point in our text, we've seen the greatness of God. He is high and lifted up. He is holy, majestic, and just. And these descriptions place infinite distance, as it seems, between us and him. He is holy, well, we are sinners. He is majestic, well, we are common, we are created. He is just, well, we are unjust in our dealings. We do what is faulty and wrong. But if it were not for this final element of praise unto our God, this final characteristic that defines him, we would be at an infinite distance from him. There would be no hope for us whatsoever. Our doctrine of God will be at a deficit if we do not realize this one final characteristic of this God that we are called to worship. Friends, let me assure you this morning, through the word of God, our God is a merciful God. We worship the God who is a merciful God. And mercy is written all over verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel are given to us as examples of God's mercy. Do you see it in the text? There are four particulars of God's mercy in these four verses. First notice, God is merciful to answer us, verses 6 and 7. These men, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, called upon the name of the holy king, and he answered them. God spoke to them so that they might know him and obey him. God revealed himself to them. The fact that God would speak to his people is a great mercy. Without his revelation, we would not know him. We would not be able to worship him. We would not know how to be reconciled to him. We would not know the way of salvation unless God revealed it to us. But God has spoken. And he spoke to Moses and Aaron through the pillar of cloud at Sinai. The Lord spoke to Samuel to call him a, as a priest in the temple. And the Lord speaks to us today through his word, through his inspired and preserved word for us. God also answers our prayers as they are in line with his word. Friends, do you feel as though you cannot approach this holy and just king, that he would never condescend to answer you in your need and distress? Look here at the mercy of God. He is a God who speaks and he is a God who answers his people. That is the assurance of verses 6 and 7. And the fact that God would speak to us and answer us is a mercy beyond mercies. What condescension from the living God. But second notice, this second element of God's mercy, God is merciful to forgive us. Do you see the first half of verse 8? God is merciful to forgive us. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were not always obedient men. No, at times they were sinful. And so the text points out that the God that we worship is forgiven. This reminds us of what the psalmist will say a little bit later. Almost four psalms later, he'll say, He does not deal with us, speaking of God, according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He is a forgiven God. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This God, let me assure you, is a forgiving God. Friends, do you feel as though you could never be reconciled to this holy and just God? Hear the word of the Lord to those who bow the knee to Jesus Christ. God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Those who repent of their sin and trust in the name of Jesus 
are forgiven. The stain of their sins is removed. Christ's blood cleanses them from all unrighteousness. What grace. But God's mercy doesn't stop here. Look at the second half of verse 8. God is merciful to answer us. He is merciful to forgive us. But he's also merciful, second half of verse 8, to discipline us. The text says that Moses, Aaron, and Samuel sinned, and God was an avenger of their wrongdoing. Here we find a painful but nonetheless glorious truth. God cares so much about us that he disciplines us. Like a father disciplines his wayward children out of love, so the Lord disciplines his wayward children. He hurts us to heal us. Proverbs 3.12 tells us, the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12 sheds further light on this truth. It says he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It would be unmerciful, it would be ungracious to leave a small child in their destructive ways. My wife and I uh, have a son whose name is Nathan. He just turned two, and he was in the habit of going up to our gas range stove and flicking on the gas. And um, sometimes he'd go into the kitchen, we wouldn't know, he'd flick on the gas, and boom, now we've got open flame in the kitchen. Maybe it's under a pot, maybe it's not. And we went up to Nathan, and each time that happened, we said, Nathan, this is absolutely unacceptable. And we made sure he knew it wasn't going to be comfortable anytime he turned on the gas. This is not okay for you. It is going to result in your harm and the harm of this household if you continue to turn on this gas. One of the biggest tragedies I think that any of us can observe is undisciplined kids. They rule the roost. They are walking their way towards destruction, and mom and dad just sort of sit back, and their hands are up, and they don't do anything about it. No, it is loving, the scriptures say, for us to discipline our kids, to show them the right way to live. It is loving. And here we see that when Moses and Aaron and Samuel sinned, God was a loving, merciful father to them and corrected their course. God is merciful to forgive us what love. And finally, look how this text ends with one more mercy. The text ends on the climax. God is merciful to discipline us, to forgive us, to answer us. But look, God in mercy in the last verse of our text is called our God. Throughout the psalm, the psalmist has repeated the phrase, holy is he. You can see it at the end of verse 3. You can see it at the end of verse 5. But here at the end of the psalm, there is a slight variation. He exhorts us to worship this holy and just king. For, look at the last line of the psalm, the Lord, our God, is holy. See the miracle of this line? God is called our God. What a way to end. To have soared to the heights of God's majestic transcendence and now to be told that he is our God. He is imminent. He is present, he is present with us. What a privilege, what a mercy that we should be given the call, the joy of calling the holy and just king our God. This shows us that God really has made a way for sinners, unholy sinners, to be reconciled to him. This shows us that the depths of God's mercy are beyond our understanding. It shows us just how much the triune God loves his image bearers and it calls us to worship him in awe, in wonder, 
and in praise. Friends, we began by saying that a deficit in our doctrine of God leads to a deficit in our worship. And it is my prayer that the sort of worship that Psalm 99 calls for would be the sort of worship that characterizes every member at Heritage Grace. I pray that you would sing and serve, obey the Lord, give of your time and your energy and your resources, encourage another, one another in light of the one another's. I pray that you would do all of this to the glory of our God who is transcendent. He far exceeds us, infinitely exceeds us, but who is also our God, the one who is imminent. And I pray that by God's grace, the word of God would inform your doctrine of God in full. And I pray that this would be the sort of church as we pray for Hessler Baptist Church with a robust doctrine of God leading to robust worship. We worship the one who is holy, majestic, just, and merciful. Let's bow before him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we continue in worship, I pray that our zeal and our attention would be struck by the wonder and the miracle of all that we have just explored in this psalm. Thank you, gracious God, for calling those who are unholy unto yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that that would never cease to amaze us. Thank you, O God, for declaring us righteous in your Son. Thank you for the hope of heaven. And I pray that all of these realities would inform our worship, not only today, but going forward so that Christ is praised. And this we pray in his name. Amen.